A new year, time for new growth. Grow your education and skills with Herzing University. Our online behavioral health programs fit your schedule and time. From an eight-month diploma program in health and human services to a 36-month bachelor's in psychology. Grow your behavioral health career with us wherever you are in your education. Your future starts now at Herzing University. Visit us online at herzing.edu or text HEALTH to 85109. Online at herzing.edu or text HEALTH to 85109. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Ah, welcome back to Heard Tell. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Thank you so much for giving us the most precious thing you have, your time, as we try to turn down the noise of the news cycle. Don't spend too much time on things that don't matter. Get to the things that do matter. Talk to knowledgeable guests and try our best to discern these crazy times we live in as we finish off the year of our Lord 2022. Normally, on this program, what we do is we cover our politics and our culture and whatever's going on in the headlines. We have our guests. And then at the end of the show, if we have time, I usually like to try to do a feel-good story or something that uplifts people, people helping each other. We do a lot of charity stories in that segment. I'm going to start with one, though, today because we're going into uh, the Thanksgiving week next week, and I just want to take a second to put some things in perspective. Let's go out to Texas. I, I know politics will be there. It's not going anywhere. We'll talk about that some other time. Let's go to Lamar County, Texas real quick. This is CBS 7. Uh, this came from our good friend Keith Conrad, who has an excellent list every night called uh, New Side Quest. You should subscribe to that. I stole this from his list. A Texas man didn't waste any time after finding an engagement ring that was lost after a tornado went through their neighborhood. Dakota Hudson said he hid the ring in the closet of the house. We couldn't find it after the tornado destroyed the home. However, everything changed on Tuesday. This is from November the 10th. Uh, KXII reported that Hudson found the missing ring with a little help while going through debris at the home site, and popped the question to his girlfriend, Lauren Patterson, right there on the spot. According to Hudson, the Paris Junior College softball team helped him in the search and refused to leave without finding the ring. When you tell 20 girls someone is going to get engaged if they find a ring, by God, they're going to find it, he said. The group said the ring was found about seven yards from the closet's location. It was torn from its box and buried at about two inches underground. It was just digging through the mud in a particular spot, and I felt a little piece of metal circle, said Kate Rainey, a volunteer who helped in the search. I didn't believe it when I found it. The couple said they are grateful to have one another through such a challenging times. Finally, if you have a moment to smile, and it was a real smile, Patterson said. It was a very surreal moment. I couldn't have asked for a better proposal. The group also found the couple's wedding band about three feet from the engagement ring. The couple said they are now planning a wedding after they pick up from the tornado. We'll link to that story. Why are we opening with that? Well, we just spent, you know, the better part of two weeks and most of the year, frankly, talking about midterm elections and Congress changing hands and new leadership roles for the people in Congress and what it means for 2024 and the presidential election. And you know what, though? We lose perspective if that's all we talk about. That's why we do food group on Twitter, not just politics. That's why we do feel good segments and we cover stories. That's why we talk to correspondents from around the world in this program about stories that give us perspective that there's a wider world outside of just the media bubble that we can sometimes make for ourselves. Here's the story for Thanksgiving. One of my pet peeves is always people skip over Thanksgiving. They go from Halloween straight into Christmas. Drives me nuts. No Christmas music until the day of Thanksgiving. Now, that afternoon, as soon as you do Thanksgiving dinner, let's go crazy. It's all 24-7 Christmas. Thanksgiving's important, not the holiday. The state of mind Thanksgiving. Are we thankful for what we got? We get really wrapped up in yelling at Washington or doom scrolling on our social media. Think about the simpleness of picking through the rubble of your home and finding a moment of joy because you can spend the rest of your life with somebody you love, like these folks finding that engagement ring. Oh, yeah, they could get married without the ring. It's a little bit of symbolism. 
We need symbols. We need little touchstones in our lives of the good stuff. And that's why I wanted to start today's program with that. We're going to have plenty of politics. We're going to have some really ugly politics going forward. There's some really ugly stuff going in the world, like the war in Ukraine. We're going to have a World Cup that Qatar bought, and they left the money on the dresser of FIFA to pay and paper over their human rights violations, slave labor. They build all those shiny uh, stadiums with. There's a lot of really bad stuff going in the world. Let's make sure our families, our communities, our loved ones, our households, those really important stuff are somewhere way up on the list ahead of politics and news filters and things like that because they really matter. Uh, I know I'm going to take a little time over the next couple of weeks. There'll be a couple of days I don't do this show because I'm going to do a little traveling. I'm going to spend some time with my family. Um, we're going to have the holidays, of course. So we'll take some time off for that. And it's very personal for me this holiday season. I'm going to make a point to make sure to enjoy it because as soon as we're done with it come January, I'm going to be doing more surgery and we're not sure how those sorts of things turn out. I learned that the hard way. That's how I'm doing this in the first place. Back in 2016, I had to have major surgery that we thought was going to be not that bad, wound up being months and months in the hospital and life changing. Now, that also opened doors of opportunity. I started writing and got to do this show. So you never know how these things go. I want to start today's program with Thanksgiving, not the holiday, the mindset, because we can lose it in Team Red versus Team Blue. We can lose it in the battle of ideologies. We can lose it in the culture war. We can lose it in the doom and gloom of, oh, the country's going to hell in a handbasket if I don't do X, Y, and Z right now, right this second. That's almost never true. You know what you can do right now? Spend a little more time with your family and loved ones. Do something real small for your community. Have you picked up the check in a restaurant for the person sitting at a table or two down with some kids that might need a little help? Do that. I guarantee you make you feel good. Pick up a little trash, maybe prune up the neighborhood, see something laying around. Maybe help an old lady across the street. I know it's hokey. It's silly. It doesn't trend. It's not viral. It's not SEO sensitive. That's the good stuff in life. Your family, your community, way more important than politics. Because if our politics aren't towards making those moments more accessible for everybody and letting the next generation have them, letting them have freedom, letting them thrive and grow, your politics aren't properly aligned. So a little Thanksgiving to start this program. Politics will wait. We'll do those some other time. We just did them for weeks on end. We got an archive of 300-some shows just full of them. We're going to your Thanksgiving today and over the weekend. We'll get back to the politics on the next Herd Tell. And more Herd Tell will continue right after this. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ah, welcome back to Herd Tell. We love talking to our friend Luis Mendez. He is at the Mendez Movie Report. He does great stuff. Y'all like him. I've seen the numbers. You move numbers, my friend. People love talking about movies. It's a good break from the culture and politics. How are you, sir? I'm doing all right. Uh, I got to tell you, you would think the midterms uh, weren't over with how many FYC stuff the studios are sending to my email and my inbox. It's nuts. I got a screener almost every night to go to. Yeah, you're down in Florida, too. So, you know, I, I think you better just buckle in, buddy. It's going to be a crossing of the streams down here for some time to come with uh, the potential of your governor maybe looking to move up and rank a little bit. I want to touch on something that we talked about the last time I had you on, and I got to thinking about it, and you mentioned a specific movie about it, and then I watched that movie, and then I really got to thinking about it. But you mentioned it. Romantic comedies, this used to be a staple of big box office releases from 
let's 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 narrow this down a little bit. Let's go late '80s, the kind of you know Harry Met Sally, Pretty Woman, that kind of era up through the modern era. That was a staple of, and now we're going through a cycle of oh well, the rom com's dead, but it's not really dead. It's just morphed to streaming. I find the romantic comedy, what's going on with it in movies right now, really fascinating and kind of indicative of what's going on with theaters versus streaming and all that too. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty obvious that the romantic comedy has kind of become something that a lot of folks seem to be more interested in watching at home. Uh, I don't think it's necessarily seen as much of an event as it may have been in the past. Uh, I mean, I remember back growing up in the 90s, I mean, they, they have romantic comedies with some huge, huge stars. And it was a big deal when those movies were coming out. So this thing would even be part of the summer uh, lineup. Uh, but these days, it, it's become very much something that is on streaming. I mean, even with a movie like Marry Me, the Jennifer Lopez, uh, Owen Wilson movie that came out much earlier this year, they went ahead and had it available on streaming as well. Um, at the same time, Universal went ahead and did that. The only uh, romantic comedy that I feel ha has been able to overcome that, there have been two. There's The Lost City, though you can argue that's more of an adventure film. And then there's Ticket to Paradise, which uh, last time I was on your show, I said that I was uh, worried about that movie's box office, but it's actually done much better than I, uh, I and a lot of other people thought it would do. And I think it's because it's probably sort of the last gasp of two really big movie stars being able to sell a movie uh, in a day and age where movie star name doesn't necessarily sell movies like they used to. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned Ticket to Paradise. That's exactly the movie I was thinking of. I actually watched it. I watched it on streaming at home. Um, let's be honest, at this stage of their career, um, Julia Roberts and George Clooney, they played Julia Roberts and George Clooney in every movie <laughs> they're in. That's, that's the static. That, look, that's an earned privilege. So, you know, it is what it is, but that's an earned privilege. But that's what they play. I thought it was a good movie. Look, it wasn't earth shattering. It was it was formulatic, but it was it was well made. There wasn't anything offensive in it. You didn't feel like God, movies have gotten so bad on some like if I just don't feel like I wasted my time, that's almost a win now watching a full movie. Right. It was good. I enjoyed it. Family enjoyed it. It was a good movie. Um, the younger stars really held their own on it. You know, I thought it was a right down the middle, you know, solid double romantic comedy. But the way you phrased it, it's really interesting. Let me pitch it to you this way. We we have the long running joke and meme of Netflix and chill. Comedy comes from a place, you know, when something catches on like that, it comes from a place of truth. There's something to Netflix and chill. That's a culture shift. And I think something like the romantic comedy, it's just so tailor-made for streaming. It really is. So it's not that it's dead. It just found a lot better market. And when you talk about everything being niche marketing now, hey, cuddle up on the couch with your significant other for romantic comedy. Like that just that I think it just kind of more went home than anything else. Is that a fair way to put it? Well, that's extremely fair. I mean, if if anybody sits down and looks at the slate of Netflix, just Netflix, and, and there's a lot of other streaming services that have their own romantic comedies, but if you get on Netflix and you look at almost every single week, there's a new romance coming out, most of them romantic comedies. Uh, we're in Christmas movie season now, and uh, Netflix is coming out with... Uh, romantic comedy Christmas movies. They just came out with one uh, with Lindsay Lohan. Um, so I think that's extremely fair. I think that's exactly where the market went for the uh, romantic comedy. Uh, you know, uh, movies like Ticket to Paradise are able to do so well at the box office as romantic comedies. Um, I think it's become much more of a rarity I think if you do see romantic comedies make real big money at the box office next time, they're probably going to be have to, for the lack of a better word, there's going to have to be a little bit of a gimmick to them to get people to really show up at the box office and feel like they have to come to the theater to see this. Because otherwise, they're just going to, they're so, uh, they're so, uh, you know, they're, they're just used to seeing it at home. Yeah, and let's talk about the business part of this for a second. Luis Mendez joining us. He's our movie expert. Certified critic now. He's he's legit. Something really interesting happened a couple of years ago. And again, this is something that's joked about on social media, but there's a real business and culture shift underneath it. One thing with romantic comedies is, and we joke about 
Hallmark has absolutely printed money making very inexpensive to make, very formulaic. And then they figured out like, oh, we can do holiday themes. We can make 30 Christmas movies every Christmas. And then we can make a Thanksgiving one. Then we can make, I don't know if they do an Easter one or whatever, but you just make these holiday movies that are just built for rom-coms. You can go back in time. Christmas for Connecticut. How many times have they remade that over the years? You know, that, that, that works. It works every time you try it. They've just figured out a new way to do it. You wouldn't think of Netflix and Amazon as chasing Hallmark Channel, but that's exactly what happened because now all of a sudden Netflix is pumping out all these rom-coms and Christmas. Stand-up. They looked at that and went, ah, that money train ain't gone too far. We can't jump on it yet. That's a very interesting development because you don't think of Hallmark leading the train on that, but they really did in a way. Oh, yeah. I, I, I actually follow a movie critic that has like a, their own podcast where they follow all the Hallmark movies. Uh, so it's always interesting to see the what kind of movies they're reviewing because, you know, I don't get to keep up with Hallmark. I, I got too many movies to watch as is. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, and it's funny because I remember for a while there, I actually referred to it in my reviews as, oh, Netflix is doing sort of these, uh, this feels sort of like a Hallmark movie. And it got to the point that was like, well, Netflix is coming out with these so much that they've kind of become their own thing. They're, you know, Netflix romance, Netflix Christmas movies. And they've even made kind of franchises off of it. When you see some of these Christmas uh, movies that have like two, three uh, sequels. Uh, so, I mean, and I think the money is there because it's just easier to get to the market at home. It's like, okay, you we're not asking you to go to the inconvenience of going to the theater and it's like, just stay at home watch this uh feel good stuff and you know what uh in some uh aspects you can even binge these movies uh so i think it's just about nailing the marketplace and i i do think that hallmark uh probably got ahead on all these guys about this and the streaming services just realized that well uh this is a real opportunity for us i one of the reasons i always enjoy talking movies with you is because you understand the business side of it Talk to that, though, because we see, man, we've seen a couple of them this year. Big budget movies that fail. You're talking about people getting fired. You're talking about studio. There's been like one bad movie can shut down a whole studio like that, especially now where the environment is so good. The reason those movies make money, even though they're not the big box office gaudy numbers is. They know exactly how much it's going to cost to produce them. They know exactly how much it's going to, the time frame to put them out. Talk about the business into that of going, oh, like, oh, this has a six-week shoot schedule or whatever it is. It's going to have a 90-day production run, and then we're going to put it out. It's going to make X money because it costs us X money. Like, this, they've got this down to a science. And any business, when you can replicate success like that, that's how you make money. That's the business side of this people don't talk about. Well, it is funny because if you think about it, cheaper movies are kind of, in, as long as you, it's the uh, uh, genres that people are, are eating up, like uh, romantic comedies or uh, Christmas movies, or even something dramatically different like the horror films that come out. If you have a cheap budget, if you can get the movie done quickly, uh, and it doesn't really take all that much to get the profit off of it. If, if you look at what small movies are struggling to get profits. Those tend to be like more art draw, art house dramas. Um, and, and that's understandable because dramas can be a bit of a hard sell, um, especially in this day and age when a lot of folks have gotten more uh, comfortable with uh, picking and choosing their adult dramas. But uh, if you could get that, that sort of magic recipe where you know how much it's gonna cost, you know, you can shoot it quickly and you don't really get got to get like Avengers numbers to get people, you know, people to show up to make profit off of it. Uh, I mean, it's understandable why they would make these. I mean, and again, you see it not just with the Christmas movies, but with horror movies, because horror movies are not uh, expensive to make. And they easily got a crowd from all the teenagers that come see them. That's automatic right there. So that they can easily make a profit off of those movies. Uh, so it's understandable. That being said, the studios are still very, very reliant these days on those huge blockbusters. Because, I mean, when you look at the budgets for some of these movies, I mean, it's ridiculous. Uh, hundreds of millions of dollars. That's before accounting hundreds of millions of dollars towards marketing, 
shooting for billion dollar box office. Uh, so it is kind of interesting how, in one sense, they can make such easy uh, profit with the small movies, but they really do gotta keep the studio running with these huge, massive uh, blockbusters. Yeah, it's funny because almost every year when you look at the the most gross or box office receipt list, every year there seems like there's a horror movie that surprises everybody. Almost every year there's one horror movie that all of a sudden made a bunch of money. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Um, your latest review, since you're talking horror that you did Mendez movie report, it's on Substack. Make sure you subscribe. He does great work. Also writes at ordinary dash times.com for us. You reviewed bones and all this has been a little bit of a divisive film. It sure seems like people either think it's brilliant or terrible one or the other and terrible might be the wrong word, but it's very jarring. Uh, let me put it that way. Again, this is a plot heavy movie, so you don't want to give it away too much, but this has got a lot of people talking, and here you go again. Another horror movie, a little bit of creative to it, stays in the genre. It seems like kind of the perfect formula for those sleeper hits you're talking about. Go ahead and give people the rundown on Bones and All. Yeah, so Bones and All is a brand new movie from the same director who actually did uh, Call Me By Your Name, which was a big uh, Best Picture contender a couple years back. Uh, it's interesting. It's, it's based on a novel. It's basically a cannibal love story. So it's, it's a mixing of horror and romance. Um, it's it's a movie that I would tell folks that if you have a weak stomach, you want to stay away from this movie. Uh, I'm very happy that my wife did not come with me to my screening because she is does not like gore. And this movie has plenty of gore. And yet it also somehow has these quiet character moments at the same time. Uh, I personally thought the movie was okay. I didn't love it as much as other folks. I, I know some movie critics who are saying it might be their favorite movie of the year. Um, it, for me, though, it, it's a movie that I got a little too grim for me at times. But uh, it is. A, I, I do wonder if it could be a, a big hit. I, I believe it should hit wide during Thanksgiving week. Uh, but it is definitely a, mi a marriage, uh, no pun intended, between horror and romance. But it is a very gory movie. If anybody out there is interested in checking it out, just to let you know, this is a cannibal love story. And they do not hold back on the fact that these are cannibals. What a fun concept. And not the political ones that we've been dealing with for the last two weeks since the midterms either. Luis Mendez, our good movie buddy, joining us. As we're recording this, uh, we got to mention it since we're talking movies. Martin Scorsese's 80th birthday is today as we record this. This will be out the next day, obviously. Um, whatever you think of all his movies, whatever pantheon of directors, he's up there somewhere on everybody's list. That's a serious list. Give me a thumbnail on Scorsese at 80. He's obviously not done. He's still working. I think he's got three projects going right now. What's his legacy? Because, you know, you got the mobster movie stuff. I actually love the fact that just every eight, nine years, he does a documentary just for the hell of it. I always kind of admired that about his career going all the way back. What What do you take away from somebody like that that we still have working he kind of got caught up in the streaming versus, you know, since we're talking about the streaming versus theater thing. And then he kind of gave into it because somebody wrote him a check that was nice enough that he's like, OK, I can get over my scruples on this. But Martin Scorsese, just some thoughts on the great man's birthday. Yeah. OK, so Scorsese is without a shadow down, extremely important to modern uh, cinema, especially for, for film buffs like me who want to check out the very old 1910s 
uh, silent films because he has been very, very important in making sure that those movies are restored, found, protected. I, I don't know how many people out there are understand how much work he's put into that kind of restoration. And the reason that I can go back and visit these extremely early days of movies is thanks to Scorsese. And as a director, he has an incredible legacy because he's had so many movies that have become it not just movies that are going to show up in the 1001 movies of watch before you die books and stuff like that but movies that are mainstream classic hits uh you know for personally my i would say probably my favorite of his old movies and this might be a little bit of a boring pick but it's good fellas uh, i really really adore that movie uh he's also done some family stuff he did hugo a couple years ago uh, he really is important, and he's still working. I mean, he's got a movie called Killers of the Flower Moon that I know is going to be an Oscar contender. Uh, we thought we were going to get it this year, but it looks like we're going to be getting it next year instead. Uh, he is very pivotal. Now, I do, I, I, I do limit my praise for the man. There are a lot of people in the film world who absolutely praise him and see him as a god. Guillermo del Toro. Uh, a couple of weeks ago made a comment that he would give up years of his life to give more years of Scorsese and stuff like that. He is a saint to a lot of folks. But I do have some issues with him regarding some of his comments of late where it sort of feels like he's kind of fighting a lot of change, uh, particularly what I think is quite frankly kind of snobbish comments about some genre films of late. But you cannot overstate how important he's been the uh, cinema, not just through his work, not through the stuff he's just coming out, but also the fact that he is a big reason why we can go back and watch a lot of movies from the 1910s and 1920s that would have otherwise maybe been lost. Yeah, one of these days we should do a long-form pod on the various fires, like the 37 Fox fire and, uh, of course, the 2008 Universal fire, like how much stuff has been lost that we will never have again that people don't even realize we lost from things like fire and degradation and things. Yeah. Like I, that. I mean, I, I think a lot of folks don't realize that the first ever movie to win best picture wings, we thought we lost it for a while. And then thankfully, I think it was in the seventies, a copy was found in a, a Paris museum, like in, in one of their archives. Uh, I mean, and, and th those kind of miraculous uh, discoveries are still happening to this day. So uh, if anybody out there, if you if you got some old movies, uh, reels and stuff, uh, check your archives and stuff because you never know if it's a lost movie. The the lost movie that I personally would love for us to find is uh, London at Midnight, which is a uh, Lon Chaney film. Uh, we've got sort of a rundown of what happens in the movie, but we don't got the movie itself. That's like the golden. That's really like the golden goose that we need for the lost films yeah and i'm not the cinephile that you are but um my favorite early one metropolis which has a lot of iconic imagery that's been stolen they they don't even know how much of it we actually have that's how much of it's lost they think we might have like 30 or 40 percent of it they found a bunch of it about 10 years ago and restored some of it but there's large chunks of that movie we don't have it go go just watch the clips of it the visuals on that when you consider when it was made is just amazing well yeah people should watch that movie because it's, it's actually my second favorite uh from that year it is a, a really darn good movie and it's just a fritz lang is probably my favorite silence film director. Uh, he just absolutely amazing the stuff that he did back then. I would I would really wonder how he he probably would have gone crazy in this day and age with visual effects and the way that language would just go big. He probably would have gone nuts if he were around today. Some of them people didn't need CGI. It would have been bad for everybody involved. Uh, Luis Mendez. All right, buddy, real quick before we let you go. Uh, we're getting down to the end of the year. Usually, this is you know people unleash a couple blockbusters right around Thanksgiving and Christmas. This year feels a little slower than maybe normal, but give people a couple things over the holidays. People like to take in movies with their families. Give folks a couple things to look for as we round out the year of our Lord 2022. Well, Black Panther: Wakanda Forever's out there. It's been huge. Uh, if folks haven't checked it out, I thought it was a pretty decent movie. I didn't like really really like it as much as the first movie but it's got a very beautiful uh tribute to chadwick boseman in there which I, I it's really impressive the way they were able to uh uh bounce back after taking that huge loss 
we do have the Avatar sequel coming out. I know Avatar's a little bit divisive for some folks. There's a lot of debate around it. Uh, I'm keeping an eye on it because it may be as big of an awards player as the last movie, but it's honestly a very big mystery as to what that's going to do, how audiences are going to react to it. Uh, we also got the Fablemans, which should be out by Thanksgiving time. I should hopefully be seeing it on Monday as of this recording. Uh, it is the newest Steven Spielberg movie. It may be the front runner to win Best Picture. And a movie that will be coming out should be wide by about Christmas week. And if you really like Wolf of Wall Street, you may want to give this movie a try. Babylon, it is the next Damien Chazelle movie. It is probably going to be a big contender at the Oscars. And it is a movie that is basically based on the 1920s and that transition from silent to talkies, uh, but with a this audacious sort of sex and drugs sort of dark comedic look to it. So if you were into Wolf of Wall Street, I think folks might want to check that out. I can't wait to check out the movie myself uh, because it, it sounds like a lot of stuff that's right up my alley. Hey, Downton Abbey's last movie already covered transitioning to talkies. I guess we just needed to sex it up a little bit more. I'm sorry. I love Downton Abbey. I apologize for nothing. Hey, 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 we got Singing in the Rain, too. Singing in the Rain classic that covers that time period also. We we joke about it before, but Hollywood loves movies about Hollywood. Yes. Like, it's just a fact. So, Lewis Mendes. We got plenty of them. Fablements, Empire Light, Babylon. We got yeah, plenty you, of them. If you want an Oscar, make a movie about making a movie or a musical about making a movie, and you will win an Oscar. That's the trick to it. Uh, Lewis uh, Mendez, our movie guy, we're going to have you on more and more because uh, one is it's fun to talk about something other than politics. Two is you're really, really good at it. So, let folks know where they can keep up with you, your writings, your other things going on, my friend, until we get you back on Hertel again. Well, just basically check out my Substack, MendesMovieReport.substack.com. You do not have to pay anything like some of these other Substacks. They're 100% free. Uh, and if you want to find me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or if you've got a letterbox, MendesMovieRPT. Uh, that's where I'm available. If you want to check out any of my thoughts on any movies, that's basically where you can find me. Yeah, you do great work, sir. We'll talk Godzilla next time. I see you wearing your Godzilla <laughs> shirt, trying to bait me into talking about because there's been some big news in Godzilla world the last few weeks. Next year, we are uh, we are going to get very, very uh, – next year, we're going to be very spoiled as Godzilla fanboys. We're going to get yeah. two Godzilla movies next year. Yeah, that news just came out, so I knew you were going to bait me into trying to talk <laughs> to it. But no, that will not work. We will do it next time. Luis Mendez, you're the best, buddy. Thank you, sir. No problem. Thanks. Yes, sir. Hi, welcome back to Hertel. Okay, we love having new folks on it. We love covering new topics because guess what happens when you cover a new topic? You find kind of the same old stories down underneath there, universal things because people are people everywhere. Let's go down under. Been a little while since we had an Australian correspondent. We got one today, Mark Burgess, another Young Voices contributor. He's down in Melbourne. How are you, my friend? Uh, good morning to you, evening my time. How are you? Yes, uh, good morning and good evening, Andrew. Thanks very much for having me on. Uh, I'm yeah. good. I'm good. How are you? Uh, thrilled to have you. Uh, he's down in Melbourne, also went to school in Melbourne. And frankly, he's going to have to just kind of walk us through this because I don't know a lot about this one either. But we have we have a little bit of posing here, I think is a fair way to term it. We have a little bit of corruption, I think we could call it. And it's all centered around sports. But here's the problem. I don't know how familiar Americans are with netball. So you're going to have to start with explaining what netball is. They know what soccer is. They know what football is. They know Australian rules football is actually decently popular in America. We always find that interesting around Grand National Tom. They don't know about this one, though. So you're going to have to explain it to us, my friend. Yeah, yeah. No worries, Andrew. Um, I guess netball, for, for no one that's ever seen it before, it's sort of a different form of basketball in a lot of ways. I guess the major difference being that when you get the ball, uh, you're not allowed to, you can't actually dribble. So as soon as somebody passes you the ball, you actually have to stand still and then pass it off to someone. 
but more or less and there's only it's one point for a score and there's no there's no three points or anything like that it's certainly in terms of its popularity there are mixed uh university netball teams but professionally it's really only uh a, a women's sport that's quite um popular so it it's an interesting instance this um kind of government overreach of, of sponsoring this team. Um, but I would encourage, I think, for anyone that's not familiar with netball, just look up on YouTube. Um, that's probably the best way to to check it out. And check out Australian Rules if you've never uh, seen it before as well. Yeah, somewhere John Gattuso, my middle school basketball coach, is going, that's how I taught him basketball. He catch the ball, don't dribble, just stand there and pass. <laughs> he, his big thing was no more than one or two dribbles and pass. He wasn't into dribbling, mostly because I was really bad at it. <laughs> Anywho, uh, here's the problem. So we have this professional netball team. Long story short, they lose their sponsorship. The background here is, though, we're getting ready to have an election in Victoria, which is a state in Australia, and a politician decides to get involved. Pick it up there because that's where the kind of the trouble starts and where everybody starts paying attention to the story. And it goes from just being a, oh, you lost the sponsorship to a team to the political realm. And then all the streams start crossing in a hurry. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, Andrew. And I'll just backtrack really quickly just because the the decision to drop the sponsor was actually the netball team because uh, Gina Reinhart is the uh, chairman of Hancock Prospecting, which is an iron ore company, and her father, Lang Hancock, he made some sort of unsavoury uh, comments 38 years ago um, and so about Indigenous Australians. One of the Indigenous Australian players actually uh, said, I'm not comfortable wearing this logo uh, when I'm playing for Netball Australia. And so all of the other players rallied around her. The trouble was uh, Gina Reinhardt had given them a $15 million contract. And so it's kind of, it's not really feasible to have a sponsor and you're not going to wear their logo. So in the end, they dropped they dropped the sponsor, even though they were $7 million in debt. And this is where Daniel Andrews from uh, the Victorian Premier swoops in, and it's worth noting it's not as though it's not as though there weren't other people, including there were actually other Australian states. But just on principle, I don't think there should be governments coming in here to be the sponsor for a sporting team because there were private institutions that were willing to to support Netball Australia. But Andrews has just come in here, uh, and so he's he's just he's a master politician. Uh, a bit of a Machiavellian, if you will, Daniel Andrews. And I was kind of thinking initially, I'm not really sure why this is going to antagonise a lot of people, but I think the analysis was correct in that it's um, it really plays into the inner city, uh, often Greens swinging voters. He's kind of appealed to them with this decision to sponsor Netball Australia. And it the background's important that the previous sponsor was an iron ore company because it kind of pits the more progressive left, you know, very much the climate change, renewable energy agenda against an old school uh, Australian mining company. So uh, all of that background information is um, is really relevant, I guess. So it's it's not only it's not only just filling uh, the sponsorship void, but it's also just a bit of a in your face to uh, Gina Reinhart as well, I guess. Mark Burgess joining us from Australia. I can be sympathetic to uh, <laughs> mining companies that do wrong. Look, I'm from West Virginia. We got some flattened off hilltops that we can talk about sometime. Look, mining companies need to be reined in. I'm all fine with that. They need to pay for their destruction. I'm sympathetic to such things. Where this gets bad, though, and you already touched on it, when you start talking about government money going to a private entity, especially when it's something like a sports team, especially when it's something during an election year, it just screams untoward, doesn't it? Because it, it becomes so obviously a po you already mentioned it. Like, look, this is this is a classic hot button political debate. You have the mining company, you have, you know, the progressive wings. This this just all fits so so neatly that this is kind of a story. It just pushes so many buttons at once. Then you get, you know, a schemer kind of a politician like Andrews, and they can just drop the money in it. It just feels icky to me. Oh, is absolutely. That a fair way to say it? Oh, absolutely, Andrew. And it's um it is inherently, in and of itself, as an isolated incident, I would say it is icky. Uh, I think it's it is inappropriate. But not only not only just as an isolated incident, but the backdrop of Victoria's economy, 
now. Bearing in mind, Victoria, uh, the city of Melbourne was the longest longest lockdown in COVID in the Western world. Absolutely has obliterated the economy here. So we, I, I say in the article, uh, Victoria is on track. Our debt is on track to exceed that of New South Wales, Queensland and Tasmania combined. And for perspective, New South Wales has a larger state economy than Victoria. So this is um, really kind of monstrous levels of debt. So it's kind of this backdrop of they really should be tightening up the budget and exercising some fiscal discipline. So I think this was the real kick in the guts for a lot of Victorians is that in the circumstances of, of being in this much debt to then go and somehow pull out a lazy 15 million, when I say pull out, of course, it's it's taxpayers' money to sponsor a national Australian netball team. It's just ridiculous. And it's insulting, to be honest, because the, the argument that Andrew's tried to use to justify it was that it's going to contribute to the Victorian economy, which is just nonsense. Like it, it's just, it, it is just a, a non-argument to to say that. So it's, uh, yeah. And as you said, Andrew, it doesn't, it doesn't smell right. I guess it's probably a bit of an instance of pork barreling, but it's, yeah, it's remarkable. He, he just, he gets away with it. Yeah. Mark Burge is down in Australia joining us. You know, we say on our program all the time, things don't happen in a vacuum. They happen in a sequence. You just mentioned, you know, Melbourne, Sydney, the other major cities in Australia. We talked to our friend Emily Dieback a couple of years ago when the lockdowns were severe, like where they're jerking joggers off the streets, all this kind of mess. You know, yeah. you could yeah, only go to the store right, for Emily. certain time. Yeah, yeah, we had her on and talked about all this. One of the highest rated episodes we did that year. People couldn't believe it because we think of Australia as being this open place. You touched on an interesting strand here. You said this is predominantly a woman's sport on the professional level. And it's kind of almost doubly insulting in a way because, and you touched on it, women were very acutely affected during those lockdowns. That's right. Um, yeah. The pandemic response and what it entails. So to make a pose out of a women's sport on top of it, taking the background, taking the history, taking everything else that goes on, that feels like an extra layer of cynicism added to this thing. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I guess it's almost probably um, almost trying to make amends, perhaps, for the the lockdowns. Although it is remarkable, Andrew, we've you would think that given given everything that Emily kind of went through, and Emily was up in uh, in Sydney, in New South Wales, and they they had quite a long lockdown as well. Uh, Victoria Victoria's unfortunately was even longer. But what's remarkable is. Uh, Daniel Andrews was the premier all the way through Melbourne uh, being in lockdown. And it is it is kind of scary that uh, you would think that a politician in those circumstances wouldn't be re-elected that had these really kind of draconian measures, uh, you know, n not only affecting women, but um, everyone ultimately. And it is, I guess... The only explanation that I have is that they've just kind of whipped up sort of hysteria and fear into into the kind of populace, and it's um, yeah, it, it's it is pretty pretty crazy times. Mark Burgess joining us down in Australia. You just mentioned it. You know, we're just sitting and talking about it. We can highlight it. This has obviously been a viral story that's gotten a lot of press, but this is going to be up to the voters of Victoria. The election is coming. Nutshell it for us, because obviously an American audience, the international audience doesn't know the ins and outs of Victorian politics. Give us a little bit of the lay of land. What do you expect? What are the voters expecting? Do the voters feel a need to hold people accountable or are they just kind of moving on? What's the lay of the land there electorally right now? Well, the lay of the land, it's its really strange, to be honest, Andrew. Um, unfortunately, the Victorian opposition, so the two main parties in Australia is the Labor Party and the Liberal Party, uh, the Liberal Party being traditional, traditionally centre-right and Labor being centre-left. It remarkably is looking as though Daniel Andrews of the Labor Party, uh, by the way, he's from the socialist socialist left of the Labor Party, will be, will be re-elected, and that's despite... Victoria uh, 
being Australia's debt capital, you know, a projected $167.5 billion debt by 2026. Scandal after scandal. He's been investigated four times by our... uh, anti-corruption commission here in Victoria and has has managed to to get off scot-free each time. But in terms of the lay of the land, it is looking as though Labor will be re-elected. So it is quite remarkable given given the circumstances of the... And the probably a, a pretty interesting stat, Andrew, is that Victoria will have been a Labor government, if, if Andrews is re-elected, will have been a Labor government 23 out of the last 27 years if, if he's re-elected and sees out his next term. So we're more or less moving towards a one-party state. Andrews was elected in, in 2014. But yeah, look, unfortunately, it's a combination of a masterful politician in Andrews and also just a really weak opposition. And I would say the Liberal Party in Victoria, rather than actually standing up for things on principle, they've been kind of shifting further and further to the left a little bit. So Victoria is possibly the most left-wing state, most progressive state in Australia, and there's really no competition for... It's really unfortunate because I think a lot of people don't know who to vote for because there's just not... The alternative isn't that much better. Like on principle, I think that a lot of people just won't vote Daniel Andrews. And now we also have, um, so we've got a couple of minor parties, the Greens, who are, who focus pretty much on climate change and so on. But the reality of the situation is like they would drive the economy into the ground if they were ever uh, in a majority. Uh, and then we also have these sort of um, teal independents, and they're all probably going to preference the Labor Party. So I think my my prediction is probably it'll be Labor will be re-elected. It might be uh, in a minority government this time around. For the Liberal Party to win back government here, they have to win 18 seats, which is huge. Uh, so even if they had their had their stuff together, uh, which I don't think they do, then it would be a massive task. But considering you know that they're just um they're sort of neither here nor there and they were sort of missing in that they didn't really hold the government to account i guess that's been one of the most depressing things about living in melbourne uh and victoria is that while all of these draconian measures had been going on there was no you'd think that it's um a great opportunity for the opposition to come in and really stand out but but they were just kind of uh, missing in action, I guess, for one of a better term. Yeah, we've got some places in America in our midterms like that where you got single party rule going on. And then on the other hand, you know, we've been talking about it for a couple of years now, the COVID stuff. Everybody told you who they were, what they were and what they're about. And it's amazing to me that some people don't want to believe what we got told and act like nothing happened. But it sure That's seems right. like it's happened and it seems to be universal. We just talked to our UK friends. We talk about our overseas friends. We talked to our American friends. Seems to be universal. People just move on and never learn the lesson. It's a sad thing. Mark Burgess down in Australia. Love the chat, man. Let's do this again soon. Until we get you back on the program, though, let people know where they can find you. We're going to link to his piece and some background information if you want to know more about these topics in the show notes. But let folks know where they can follow and keep up with you until they see you again on Herd Tell, my friend. Yeah, absolutely, Andrew. Um, well, primarily, just I do need to create a Twitter account, but um, you can you can add me on LinkedIn and keep following me in the Spectator Australia. Those are the two main places. And I might actually ask Andrew. I'm curious because my perception. I don't know if this was like the international perception of Australians prior to to COVID happening, but my perception was that Australians kind of had this larrikin attitude of uh, you know giving a bit of a one of these to authority. But the strange thing from COVID has seemed to be that Australians have proven to be a very kind of compliant people in terms of uh, with, with all the government um, restrictions and so on. There hasn't been much pushback. Has that surprised uh, a lot of Americans in, in your... It, yeah, it depends on who you talk to because we, you know, of course, we have a very diverse country and a diverse media. Mm-hmm. It depends on who you talk to. I don't know if rebellious is the right word. Australians have the reputation, of course, of being very friendly, very free loving, almost, you know, enjoying life, lots of that kind of stuff, you know, kind of the stereotypical, you know, you want to be outside, you want to have fun, you want to party a little bit, which is a little unfair, but there's some truth to that. Every Aussie I've ever met has always been very pleasant with me. I served with some Aussies in in Iraq, actually. Uh, Love those guys. They were fun. 
So that's kind of so re rebellious might be a little strong. There, the thing in leftward media is that they like because it's a little bit more of a progressive country than ours in a lot of ways. So they they always enjoyed y'all. The right leaning media for the last few years, though, when when y'all did gun control and they did the mm -hmm. gun confiscation, that broke through with the right wing media. So the folks that followed that story from however long it was. I don't think they were surprised because, and then they, in their minds, they put those two things together, even though they're, they're probably not a complete match that way. So the right leaning media, they already had that perception from the gun grab thing, because that's a major issue for the right side media in America. So it depends on who you talk to, to be fair about it. I think that's the best way I can break it down for you. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, it's interesting. Oh, well, it was, um, yeah, really enjoyed the conversation, Andrew. And yeah. thanks very much for having me on. Definitely do it again. Mark Burge is down in Atlanta. Mark Burge is down <laughs> in Australia. Appreciate the time, sir. Thank you very much, Andrew. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. That'll do it for Hertel. Remember, we'd love to hear from you. Hertel Show on the gmail.com. If you want to send us an email, Hertel Show on the Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. Always happy. This doesn't work if you're not listening. So wherever you and yours are, thank you so much for listening. Until we talk to you again on Hertel, we hope you are well. We hope you are well fed. We'll see you real soon. Right back here for more Hertel. All the music on Hertel is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com.